And Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to come to Your Word, Lord, we ask that You would bless the preaching of Your Word. We ask that You would use Your Word to strengthen us, to edify us, to give us courage, to give us comfort, to give us conviction, to give us compassion for the lost. Oh Lord, we ask that You would use Your Word to do Your work in us. We pray, Lord, that we would see the futility of our own wisdom, see the futility of our own ways of thinking, and that we would trust entirely in Your Word. To that end, Lord, we ask that the Spirit would give us understanding, that we would not be lost in darkness, that we would not be confused and lacking understanding, but knowing that Your Word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, we ask that You would use Your Word to equip us for every good work, for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Matthew. We will be continuing our study in the series uh, on our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, as you know, we are a church that believes that all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the Word of God is what equips us, all of the Word of God is what equips us for every good work, and therefore, uh, while most of the month we are spending our time in the Old Testament in First Samuel, the first Sunday of every month we are in the New Testament, kind of keeping one foot in, in the Old Testament, one foot in the New Testament, because we believe that it's all to our benefit. So today we will be in Matthew chapter 5, continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we will specifically be looking at verse 4. And now you know why I say that uh, this is a series that's going to take us about two years to get through, because if I'm covering only one verse at a time, I'm going to take about a year just to get through the Beatitudes. Um, but you will find that each one of them is very profitable to us uh, and says a lot about what the Christian life is really all about. Remembering that the Sermon on the Mount is really kind of a Christian manifesto of family values. Uh, we've been adopted into God's family. These are the family values that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Now this coming week, uh, there's a special day coming up, a day that a lot of us like to celebrate, uh, the 4th of July. And of course, the 4th of July marks the day that the Second Continental Congress ratified what we refer to as the Declaration of Independence. Independence. We love independence. That's what the 4th of July is all about. Independence is, for all intents and purposes, kind of central to not only the American way of, of thinking and, and living and existing, but it's also of humanity's way of thinking in general. We tend to be autonomous people. We tend to rely on our own understanding and want to figure things out for ourselves often meaning we have to figure things out the hard way. Uh, those who don't have independence tend to long for it. That's why people risk their lives to come to a place where there is independence. Uh, those who have it, uh, who, who understand what it is that we have, we love it 
uh, often to the point of maybe even taking it for granted. But the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence is maybe the most well-known of anything that's stated within the Declaration. The second sentence states this. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and... Uh, You already know it. See, I told you, it's so familiar to us. The pursuit of happiness. Now, what I find interesting is that those first two inalienable rights uh, that are explicitly stated, life and liberty, those are two things that are pretty easy to understand. Those are two things that are pretty easy to define. There's not a lot of confusion. There aren't a lot of uh, different ideas of what life and liberty really are. Uh, There's not a whole lot of anything ambiguous about them, you might say. But happiness, man, you want to talk about a word that has a different definition for each person. Happiness is an extremely ambiguous term. What makes me happy might not make you happy, and, and, and vice versa. What makes you happy might, might actually make me unhappy, might make me mad. So happiness is actually a very vague term that can mean any number of things, depending on who you ask. And yet, most people treat happiness, just the concept of it, as though it were the greatest of all virtues, the greatest possible good, regardless of any downside. I'm reminded of the old song lyric, which is an absolutely ridiculous song lyric. I'm sorry. Absolutely a a ridiculous thing to sing. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Anybody know that song? Anybody ever heard that song? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. How many of you know that that isn't true? (laughs) How many of you have known people who felt happy about things that actually hurt them or, or caused them harm in some way? Uh, that's, that's how addictions start, with the idea that if it makes me happy, it can't be that bad. It, it, the idea that if something gives us a sense of happiness, well, it should be pursued regardless of whatever the downside may be. But as Christians, we recognize that our flesh pulls us one way and the Spirit pulls us the other way, and we're supposed to find happiness in the right things not in the wrong things. So as Christians, we take what God says in His Word very seriously. And if we have an understanding of what God's Word says about sin, and what God's Word says about the natural, unregenerate man's condition, you know that the freedom to pursue happiness, whatever that might entail, is not only central to the natural, unregenerate person's way of thinking, but you also know that pursuing happiness in the flesh at all costs only results in humanity stooping to deeper and deeper levels of sin, depravity, and wickedness. We're not to be like the Stoics, however. It's not that we're not supposed to be happy or find happiness in anything. That's the Stoic idea. Those who adhere to the philosophy that, you know, we're basically supposed to be indifferent to things that should make us happy or things that should make us sad uh, to such an extent that, you know, we're kind of just emotionally uh, numb, uh, emotionally indifferent about everything. No, we recognize that God is the one who created us, and as He created us, He gave us emotions. 
And those emotions aren't necessarily bad. Uh, Emotions are actually good in the context that God designed them to function in. The problem comes when we become ruled or governed uh, by our emotions rather than ruling over our emotions and, and being in control of ourselves. But the fact is, we like happiness. We, as human beings, we like happiness and, and we find comfort in things that make us happy. In our minds, those things are, are actually inseparably connected. We don't like to be troubled. We don't want to be uncomfortable. And if you don't believe me, I mean, Big Pharma has made billions and billions of dollars on our aversion to trouble and discomfort and on the fact that what we want what we're really willing to shell out big bucks for, if necessary, is happiness and comfort. And we think that comfort is going to be found by pursuing whatever makes us happy. And this is what makes it so interesting that the next beatitude that we come to in our study of the Sermon on the Mount is is diametrically opposed to this basic way of human thinking. We have this connection in our minds between happiness and comfort. But Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, as He continues. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's important that we understand that to be blessed or to be blessed is to be actually happy. In fact, sometimes the Greek word that gets translated as blessed does get translated as happy. In fact, Young's literal translation of this verse, uh, which is a good literal translation of the Bible, it says, uh, it, it translates this verse to say, happy the morning because they shall be comforted. Happy the morning. Romans 14, uh, 22 in, in the NASB 95 translation, which is what I preach from, it says this, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And the same word that gets translated blessed in Matthew 5, 4 gets translated as happy there in Romans fourteen twenty two. Paul is actually giving us a beatitude there. Uh, From the outset, let's be reminded what a a beatitude even is. It's just a statement of blessing from God. And and the word is derived from the Latin word, which means blessed or happy. Uh, And let's also remember that the beatitudes that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with only apply to God's people. Jesus is preaching to crowds, and sure, there are undoubtedly some unregenerate people there, people who don't believe. They're, They're definitely present. But Jesus is specifically preaching to his disciples. That much is made clear in the first few verses of the chapter. And we saw that the first beatitude, which was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We saw that that served as kind of a wall that the natural, unregenerate, unconverted man is incapable of scaling. A wall that surrounds the kingdom of heaven. To be a citizen there, you must be poor in spirit. You must be humble. And that's a qualification that is entirely antithetical to human nature. If we have it, if we have humility, right humility, godly biblical humility, we have it by God's grace 
through the Spirit of God working in us to humble us. Because our natural inclination is to be egotistical. Our natural inclination... I've, I've got my own merit. Our natural inclination is to say, I don't need any help. I, I've, I've got my own merit to stand on. But now Jesus gives us the second beatitude, and it is just as impossible for the unconverted natural man as the first beatitude was. Just as the first beatitude was a spiritual quality, we have to understand that this too, here in verse 4, is speaking in spiritual terms. This is a spiritual mourning and a spiritual comfort. And so likewise, the comfort in which Jesus speaks is a spiritual comforting. And all of this forces us to ask the question, what does it even mean to mourn then? Over what must we mourn if we are to know, if we are to experience this blessing of God's comfort that Jesus is talking about here in verse 4? Now some will tell you that this, this mourning actually refers to just any kind of mourning in general. The kind of mourning that is universally experienced by all people, regardless of whether they believe or not. Uh, after all, don't all people mourn in some way, for some reason, at some time? I'd say at least sane people do, right? I mean, who but the absolute uh, maniac, the absolute lunatic, uh, doesn't mourn the loss of a loved one? Who doesn't mourn the loss of a child or a parent or a spouse? Who doesn't mourn when they lose something or someone that they had loved and invested heavily in? For example, it's entirely natural that, say a man spends five years building a house with his own two hands, only to lose it a couple of years later in a fire. We, we would say that it would be normal for that man to mourn the loss of his house after all the time he invested in building of it. We couldn't blame him for mourning, of course. James Montgomery Boyce writes of how a well-known pastor in the 20th century once pulled his church to find out what the circumstances surrounding their conversion were, what the circumstances were when, when they became Christians. And he learned that the most common response by far was a feeling of desperation or a feeling that one was, quote-unquote, at the end of their resources. Is that the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5-4? No, it isn't. That isn't the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about. Some people who are at the end of their resources might be at the end of their resources for doing something bad. A drug addict who's out of money would say they're at the end of their resources. No, some people say that uh, the being at the end of their resources is, is where a person needs to be to know God. That, in a sense, that is true. But it doesn't always lead a person to God. Some people who are at the end of their resources might become Christians, but others simply resupply their resources somehow, or they pursue or, or find hope or happiness superficially in something else. So there's no necessary connection between being at the end of your resources or being at the end of your rope and finding the spiritual comfort of which Jesus speaks here. 
Again, we have to emphasize the fact that Jesus, what, what he's describing here is unique to Christians. These are family values in God's family. Just like the comfort of which he speaks is a comfort that the world doesn't experience, the mourning of which he speaks is also a mourning that the world, the unconverted, uh, the unregenerate, doesn't know or experience. Now you might remember from last week's lesson, I, I, uh, for one of my illustrations, I talked about the first and second great awakenings, and you might remember that one of the great differences between the first and second great awakenings is that in the first, there was this emphasis on preaching on things like sin and repentance and the doctrines of grace, while the second great awakening, there was an emphasis on really psychological manipulation. And I would say that the first Great Awakening was a true revival, but that the second wasn't. And as such, one of the things that happened in the first Great Awakening was a tremendous mourning over sin. Over sin itself. Whereas in the second Great Awakening, there was more of a, of a mourning over the personal consequences of sin, but not necessarily a mourning over the sin itself. And while there's a place for mourning over the personal consequences of sin, the Christian realizes that the temporal consequences that we face for sin are actually, in a sense, a good thing because God scourges, He disciplines every son, every child He receives. He, he loves us enough to discipline us. And so we recognize that in a sense, that, that kind of thing, that kind of consequence is good uh, at least for us, it's, it's a good thing. So what kind of mourning is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about a mourning over sin itself. Not just the social stigma that you might face because of your sin. Not any consequence that you might face because of your sin. It's just a mourning over the sin itself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, quote, We have to be poor in spirit before we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, negative before positive. And here again is another example of exactly the same thing. Conviction must of necessity precede conversion. A real sense of sin must come before there can be a true sense of joy, of salvation. End quote. In other words, for a person to be a Christian... They have to have an honest view of themselves. They have to have an honest assessment of themselves. If you think a person who has spent his entire life uh, looking in skinny mirrors is going to have an honest assessment of himself, he, he's not. Uh, think about a man who's, who's spent his whole life just standing in front of a skinny mirror. And if, if you can imagine that, what I'm saying is that for a person to be truly converted, that person must look at himself in a mirror that gives him a true reflection of who he really is. And the only way to do that, the only way to see ourselves honestly and truthfully is to see ourselves as God sees us. And how do we know how God sees us? Apart from His grace, of course. A quick, honest run through the Ten Commandments does the job really well. It'll show us exactly who we are. It will reveal us 
to be the most hideous, the most vile, the most detestable monsters imaginable because of what sin has done to us. Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments in His response to the scribe, who was also a lawyer, who sought to catch Jesus in a conundrum by asking Him what commandment is the foremost of all. And Jesus responded, uh, this is in Mark 12, 28-31, Jesus responded by saying, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That's the first table of the, first, uh, of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus continue, uh, continued by summarizing the second table of the, great, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, saying, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now by the time he reached the end of the first one, somebody should feel absolutely hopeless. Because a person who's honest should say, I have never in my whole life loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so if we take an honest look at ourselves in light of just these two principles, we quickly realize that we haven't done what God requires for us to be saved. We haven't even done it for one nanosecond of our lives. Not a single person on the earth will ever be able to say, that you know, he or she couldn't possibly have loved God more. There will always be room for growth. There will always be room for improvement. And so what we see there is that we actually fall unfathomably short of that bar. In fact, even after conversion, we don't clear that bar. Not even for a nanosecond of our lives. There's always room for improvement. And we, and we struggle greatly to love our neighbors the way that we love ourselves. Because sin still dwells within us. The natural inclinations of the flesh still dwell within us. The selfishness, the egotism, it's still there. It's dead, but it's still there. An honest assessment of the Ten Commandments only reminds us that we've failed. But Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't fail. And this is exactly why Charles Spurgeon once said, the nearer a man lives to God, the more intensely he has to mourn over his own evil heart. End quote. If you are going to be a citizen of God's kingdom, if you're going to be a child adopted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, into God's family, you're going to have to come to terms with the reality of the sin in your life. And when this truly happens, it causes mourning. A person will mourn. And this is actually something that isn't new. Jesus isn't preaching anything new here. This is actually found throughout the Old Testament Scriptures as well. Starting in the Old Testament, consider Scripture's use and, and Scripture's witness of this principle, of, of the necessity of mourning. In his, uh, his famous Psalm of Confession, of course, Psalm 51, David says this in verse 3. He says, My sin is ever before me. He's broken over that. He goes on to say in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Because he can't do it himself. 
Do not cast me away from your presence. Verse 11, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Verse 14, you see the language here is language of deep, penetrating anguish and mourning within. One of the principles that we gather from that psalm, Psalm 51, is that this is what God wants our attitude towards sin to be. Verse 16, David says this, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Well, those are the means that God had given to Israel for for cleansing. If these things aren't pleasing to God, what's he supposed to do? He follows that up immediately by writing, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's verse 17. In other words, you could bring God all the sacrifices. You could bring God all your best works. You could bring God all the money and all the stuff in the world. But if your heart isn't broken over sin, if you do not mourn over your sin, all the money and all the burnt offerings in the world mean nothing to God. Your sin remains on you. God wants us to recognize our sin, thus rendering us poor in spirit. And He desires that we have the right attitude toward our sin. Not that we celebrate it. Not that we become prideful and even devote a whole month of pride toward our sin. But that we would mourn. That we would be broken. That we would be contrite over our sin. That's what he wants our attitude to be. We find this in in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, which says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. In other words, when he says, rend your heart and not your garments, he's saying, don't just put on an act. Putting on an act means absolutely nothing to God. He sees right through it all. He's not impressed with with our ability to, to act and to put on a show. No, he wants it to be inward. He wants it to be real because the inward will flow outward. But if you just start with putting on an act, it's not good enough. It does nothing. See, the natural man, the unregenerate man, is ruled over by sin. He is governed by sin. Sin is his master. And he has grown comfortable. Not only comfortable with this master, but he's grown fond of this master. But once a man is faced with his sin and the way that sin has governed him, has ruled over him, has enslaved him, has dominated him throughout his entire existence, he cannot remain comfortable and content with his old master if he is to be converted. He must forsake, he must hate his old master. That is to say, that there must be a sense of conviction before there can be conversion. If there isn't conviction of sin, the person will not see their need for help. 
The person will not see the beauty. They will not see the the freedom that is offered to him as a free gift of God in Christ Jesus. Let me lay out two characters side by side for you from the New Testament for you to compare and contrast. First of all, consider the rich young ruler that we read about in Mark chapter 10. Uh, We saw in our lesson on being poor in spirit that this young man was far from being poor in spirit. He was not humble. In fact, he was very prideful as he boasted of how he had kept all the commandments since his youth. Uh, And Jesus said to him, Mark 10, 21, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And then we read this in verse 22. But at these words, he, the rich young ruler, but at these words, he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Do you see that? He's grieving? Do you see that he's, he's mourning something here? See, he did mourn, but he didn't mourn rightly. He didn't mourn rightly. He mourned over the fact that following Jesus would require that he surrender his favorite idol, his things, his possessions, of which he had many. And so he grieved that he couldn't have both. But he went away. Now compare him with the Apostle Paul who wrote this in Romans chapter 7, verses 15-19. to He says, What I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, For the willing is present within me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. How many of you know what that feels like? To hate something that you love. It's a hard place to be. Paul goes on to say in verses 23 and 24, he says, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He feels like a prisoner who's trapped in his own body and his his whole being is just divided. He knows what's right. He knows what's good. He wants to do those things. That's what matters, by the way. But he doesn't. He doesn't do those things. He desires them, but he doesn't. And the things that he doesn't desire, he does. Paul's soul was mourning. His his heart is, is grieving here at the reality of the sin that is still dwelling within him in his life. Sin which prevented him from doing the things that he wanted to do and then making him do things that he didn't want to do. So you see the vast difference between these two characters, between the rich young ruler and the condition of Paul's heart. You see the difference, don't you? It's really plain as day. And which of these men do you suppose the Christian ought to be like in terms of their attitude towards sin? Of course, the answer is Paul. Do you know what it's like to feel like you've been freed from sin and yet 
sin, even though it's no longer your master, it still keeps finding a way back into your life and telling you what to do? Do you know the frustration of that kind of experience? Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and you can't get to sleep because you're thinking, why do I keep doing this sin? Why is it still dominating and governing me? Oh God, what are you going to do? What are you, how am I going to be freed from this sin? Have you been there? It's a place where all of us should have been. We should because every true Christian experiences the same grief, the same mourning that the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7. Every Christian can say with Paul, nothing good dwells within me, within my flesh. Nothing Or in the words of David in Psalm 16, verse 2, I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides You. Several years ago, I preached that psalm, Psalm 16, and a few Sundays later, a woman who had been a member of our church came up to me after the service and she was shaking and refusing to make eye contact with me, so I knew that something was very wrong. And she said that she had made up her mind and that she wasn't going to argue and she didn't want me to try to convince her otherwise. She was going to leave our church because I had preached that Psalm 16 verse 2 uh, didn't mean, uh, it didn't mean what I, what I preached it as, that I had interpreted it wrongly. She said this, she said, David didn't mean that he had no moral good besides God, she argued. He meant that he had no goods as in earthly material goods or things. Now, I'm human. I can be wrong about things. And, and I, I, I welcome criticism. I, I do. Uh, I, I want to know if I'm wrong about something. N- not only so that I can correct it for you, but so that I can correct my, my own understanding. So I actually went and spent a few hours scouring the internet for anyone who held that view that she had in this verse. And finally, I did find one person who graduated from the most liberal, godless seminary that I know of, which is Union Theological Seminary in New York City, of course, uh, who held that view. No, David was not talking about material goods. He was saying what Paul said. There is no moral goodness within me. I have no moral goodness to speak of aside from the Lord working to produce good within me. The woman ended up leaving our church immediately. And to this day, I must confess that I do fear for that woman's soul. Just as I fear for the soul of anyone who claims to be a Christian and yet isn't able to say what both David and Paul said about their moral condition. Somebody who who disagrees with what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. Conviction must, must precede conversion. The Christian knows that there is absolutely and unequivocally Nothing good within us apart from God's grace producing good within us. That the best that we have to lay before God's judgment throne is just dirty rags. As we're confronted by the sheer undefiled holiness of God and see what He requires for salvation. We are humbled and we see ourselves as absolutely hopeless. 
The, the ground that we thought that we could stand on, all of a sudden it's just sinking sand. We're, we're going to die. We have no hope. And when we consider the life to which God calls us, we must mourn over that sin which prevents us from fully realizing and experiencing the practical holiness that we ought. So so we're again struck with our total and complete helplessness to the point that we can say with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And the answer is found in the next sentence in Romans 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he moves on to chapter 8 where he begins the chapter with, you know it's one of my favorite verses, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore there is now, at this moment, while I'm, while I'm struggling with sin, while I'm struggling with the idea that sin, that, that I'm doing what I don't want to do and I'm not doing what I do want to do, now, therefore there is now no condemnation. So the question is, am I in Christ Jesus? Have I believed in Him? Is He my only hope? Do I believe that He's my only hope? Yes. That's where I find comfort. That's where my heart, my mind can rest and go back to sleep. Why would we believe in Jesus and why would we stand only exclusively on Him and His merit and not only partially if we're convinced that we have at least a little bit of merit that we can stand on? You see, the humility which flows from being poor in spirit also leads us necessarily to mourning. We're not to be prideful about our sin. We aren't even to be casual or indifferent toward our sin. We must fight our sin. We must indeed fight tooth and nail against the tendency that we have to be indifferent or just apathetic toward our sin. Or, God forbid, to take the view that, well, God's going to forgive me anyway, so I may as well just go ahead and do it. No, that's not how it works. Read Romans chapter 6. And this, my friends... All of this is the path of blessedness. By, by all means, pursue happiness. Absolutely. But know this. Know that this is where true happiness is found. In Christ alone. It's the path that leads to being spiritually comforted by the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah prophesied concerning Jesus. He says this, Chapter 61 of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Of course, this is what Jesus read in the temple, we know. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. 
You see then that if you do not mourn over sin, you also do not find yourself as a recipient of something that Isaiah says that Jesus would come to do and says this very explicitly, that He would comfort all who mourn. And if you're saying, I've got nothing to mourn over, well, guess what? You have no comfort that Christ came to provide either. Consider also the prophecy of Zechariah when he writes of the, of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. He says in, in chapter 12, verse 10, he says, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Who pierced Christ? Who crucified Christ? Who nailed Him to the cross? Why, you did. And I did. We we all did. Everyone for whose sins He bled and died did. And so then we must see that the Christian is one who mourns over sin. They, They mourn over sin because they love Jesus. And they can't stand the fact that their sin is why he had to suffer. The Christian mourns his sin. He hates his sin. He hates it because he knows that there's part of him that, that wants it, that loves it. And he just can't stand it. He, he wants to be free of that. The Christian mourns his own sin. And yet he is comforted. Because when he looks upon Jesus, he finds a Savior. He finds somebody who can set him free from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And by God's grace, he believes. And he becomes a recipient of that sacrifice, of the benefits of that sacrifice, chief among which is comfort. The burden of sin is removed from his shoulders. And so he's comforted. And yet the mourning doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at your own sin. Friends, the entire Christian life is about growing in the likeness of Christ. That's what everything in the Christian can do in us. And one of the ways, and it lasts until death, and even then it'll be incomplete. And one of the ways that Jesus was described in prophecy in the Old Testament was as a man of sorrows. If you're going to become like Jesus, you too have to become a man or woman of sorrows. What was it, though, that caused Jesus to have sorrows? We can't say that it was His sin because He didn't have any. He was the perfect spotless Lamb who had no sin. He was perfectly righteous. Rather, what caused Him sorrow was the sin that He saw in others. And so the Christian mourns the sin that he sees in others knowing that if they will not come to the point where they see and mourn over their sin, then they will not see their need for a Savior. And he fears, the Christian fears, that they will spend eternity in a place of of never-ending weeping and gnashing of teeth if they will not see themselves 
in the light of God's law as it truly reveals them to be. If they don't see themselves that way, they won't see their need for a Savior. If they don't see their need for a Savior, they're not going to look for one. If they don't look for one, they will end up in a place of darkness and of weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Consider what we read in Luke 19, verses 40 to 41. Which says this, it says, when, when, he, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which made for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There was an urgency. This was the time for them to recognize their visitation. The time that they stood before God and had a chance to believe. The Christian mourns over his own sin, first and foremost, of course, but he also mourns over the sin that he sees in others, in the world. He grieves over the injustices that he sees. He grieves over the lies that his neighbor embraces and and even lives by. He mourns to see people that he knows and loves being ruled over and governed and dominated by the same cruel master who used to rule over and govern and dominate him, knowing that sin is a master that leads us to judgment day without a mediator and without a defense to stand on. The Christian hates to see the way that sin has marred God's beautiful creation at large, causing great evil not only to exist, but often to even flourish. He loathes the worldly movements that take place right out in plain sight for all to see. And he hates this, and he grieves over this, because he's able to see What an incredible offense it is to the thrice holy God and judge of all creation. And afflicted John Flavel, quote, the more holy any is, the more he is grieved and afflicted for the sin of others. And the more tender any man is, he is pierced with beholding the miseries that lie upon others, end quote. The true Christian not only longs for the day when he is entirely freed from his own sin, but he longs for the day when he also won't be surrounded by sin, hemmed in by sin on every side on a daily basis. And the Scriptures do promise that the day will come when we will be finally and ultimately comforted. When not only will the sin within us, that, that dwells within us, uh, be removed, but also sin will be sequestered. It'll be separated from us forever. We'll never even have to look at it again. We long for the day that the Apostle John describes in Revelation 21.4 when he says, that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For now though, for now the man who mourns is actually blessed. He's happy. That's paradoxical, isn't it? 
And yet that's the paradox that Jesus sets forth before us here in the fourth verse of Matthew 5. Because our mourning over the reality of sin in our lives is what has caused us to look for and to search out a Savior. Somebody who can get us out of this. Somebody who can pay our sin debt. And who can set us free from this body of death? Only someone who knew no sin. And there's only one man who knew no sin. And he alone is qualified to be our Savior and Redeemer. Of course, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. If we mourn, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to mourn because it reveals, shows us how badly we need a Savior. And by God's grace, we find Jesus to be that Savior. But friends, you do not need to wait until the day when God deals once and for all with sin and removes sin from you to experience the comfort that Jesus brings. There is a comfort that you can experience now, today, in knowing that Jesus, who who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could be reconciled to God. That is, on Calvary, Jesus took our sin upon Himself so that it would be as though Jesus Himself had committed all the horrible, awful things that we have done so that He could pay that penalty. And simultaneously, His perfect righteousness was credited to us as if we had lived His perfect life so that when God looks at us, He can say, you're innocent. Your sin debt. And so in this way, Christ has freed us from the penalty of sin. Our our sin debt is paid in full, and there is no greater spiritual comfort than knowing that. Knowing that. And yes, you can know that. Because now we're able to rejoice and say, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, no condemnation now I dread. But there's also comfort in knowing that Jesus has not only freed us from the penalty of sin, He has, 100%. But He's also freed us from the power of sin, from its rule over us. Sin is no longer our master. It's no longer the tyrant that tells us what to do. We're no longer its slaves. Rather, we are now, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, we are now slaves not to sin, but slaves to righteousness. That's not to say that we are sinless. The Apostle John corrects any idea that we can attain a state of perfection on this side of glory when he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that is absolutely true. We won't see perfection on this side of glory. Nevertheless, while we won't be sinless on this side of glory, We strive, we desire, that's the key, just like with Paul, we desire to sin less, even though we won't be sinless. We fight. There's something in us that desires to fight instead of embrace the indwelling sin. We want to kill it. We want to gut it. We hate it. And we do these things knowing that one day Jesus will comfort us in an ultimate sense. John says this in 1 John 3, 2. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. In other words, we will no longer have any indwelling sin. We will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. 
That is to say that one day, Jesus will once and for all rid us of all indwelling sin and from all the awful effects of sin in our lives. We find Christ to be our great comfort because we know that He has delivered us from the penalty of sin. He has delivered us from the power of sin. And He will deliver us from the presence of sin forever. Do you find comfort in that? I hope your answer is yes because that's the comfort that Jesus is talking about here. Right now, Yes, there's happiness that we have that's mixed with mourning and grief because we're not sinless. But one day, all who have repented of sin and who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ will know and forever live in an unmixed state of joyful blessedness, eternal, unfailing happiness. It's by the grace of God that we mourn over sin, both ours and the sin of our fellow man. But it's the same grace that gives us the right perspective of sin so that we may see our sin for what it truly is, so that we may hate it as God hates it, and so that we may turn from all the empty promises that sin has made us and find true happiness, true blessedness, true comfort in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that it testifies of Your holiness, of our need for grace, of our need for a Savior. And we thank You, Father, that in Your goodness, You have not only ordained that You would call us out of darkness and into Your marvelous light, but You have ordained that we would see our sin for what it is, that we would mourn over it, that we would experience a a temporary sense of hopelessness so that we would look for a Savior. And You also ordained that we would hear the blessed words of the Gospel, the free gift of salvation in Christ. You have drawn us to Christ by Your grace. You sustain us in Christ by Your grace. Oh God, we pray that You would teach us to be a people who mourn rightly, who hate sin, who know the frustration that the Apostle Paul felt in Romans chapter 7. Oh God, but we also pray that we would know the wonderful freedom that he expresses when he gets to Romans chapter 8 where he tells us that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, help us in this mixed state of blessedness and knowing that our sins are atoned for, that we're reconciled to you, but also mourning over the sin that continues to dwell within. And teach us, Lord, teach us to... Remember in those times when we are struggling and mourning that Jesus paid it all. That we stand in His perfect righteousness because He stood in our utter sinfulness. Teach us, Lord, to be a people who 
have compassion for others who are lost. Help us to see them not as our enemies, but as people who have been taken captive by the enemy, who have been blinded from seeing the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus by the devil. And help us, O Lord, have the courage and the the patience to be a people who pray for and are willing to share the gospel with those who are still lost in darkness. Lord, thank you for your promises. Thank you for the promise that one day we will never have to look on sin again. But we ask that you would sustain us by your grace until that day for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.